The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and this is your rabbi. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin with my solemn mission of revealing how the world really works. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, downloading it, making it a part of of your life and your listening pleasure. I really appreciate that, and uh, I am obsessive about watching the download numbers because, uh, as I've already told you, they are precisely what fuel my passion. They propel me forward as I record this uh, podcast for you every week. And I would like to start off today... And I, we, we have a number of topics that I'm, I'm hoping to, to be able to get to. Um, one of them is I uh, want to talk about uh, why is it okay to sell body parts from unborn little humans, but not okay for fully sentient adults to voluntarily sell their own organs. Um, so in other words, if, if somebody is willing to sell a kidney, why is that illegal? Why should that be prevented? Why is this not simply out of the entire purview of government? Why is this not an utterly acceptable transaction between two free and independent human beings? So that is prevented, but the dismembering and selling of body parts of uh, tiny little humans, that is okay. What's wrong with this picture? We're going to talk about that. And uh, also want to talk about uh, Somalia having the worst famine they've ever had. But wait a sec. In 1973-1974, Somalia was having the worst famine they ever had. And then back in 1960-1961, Somalia was having, oh, the worst famine they ever had. Doesn't this begin to remind you of Stalinist Russia, where inexplicably... Every five years, every ten years, there was a famine. Every ten years, reliably, something went wrong. And what, like, what was it? And it's regardless of rainfall, there's still a famine. What's going on there? These are, are some of the thoughts and ideas that I've been working on during the course of this week uh, in the excited anticipation um, of being able to share them together with you. But to start with, wanted to uh, explore something which again is uh, is almost uh, obvious it, it it it's as clear as daylight nonetheless one seldom encounters any serious questioning of this phenomenon what am i talking about the fact that there is almost no liberal side of the politics talk radio uh, you can hear conservative talk radio in almost every single radio market. Uh, you've got your, uh, your, your talk radio stars, and, and you know who they all are. Uh, and there you can hear them literally in almost every city in the country. There is a talk radio station. Now, even national public radio, and let's not even go into now, why should the government have to subsidize radio? What for? What's the idea? Why do people have to pay extra tax so that uh, the government can decide what should be on the air on national public radio? Different, different question. 
uh, public television, same question. But uh, my point right now is, how come that even on national public radio, you seldom hear any liberal talk radio? Uh, you've, you've, got, you've got a few shows, but they're obviously shows that would not work in an unsubsidized format. Now, whenever the government subsidizes stuff, you end up with Solyndra. You might remember the Obama administration's triumph of, um, of sustainable energy. Solyndra was a photovoltaic cell manufacturer that was going to put coal-fired power stations out of business and make nuclear power utterly redundant and unnecessary. Yeah, God. Solyndra broke, bankrupt, massive collapse. Tremendous loss of taxpayer money. But uh, uh, liberal talk radio, apparently it can only be sustained with government funding. Does the term Air America remind you of anything? Yeah, Air America is the broadcast equivalent of Solyndra. Air America was an attempt to create a heavily funded liberal talk radio network. Now, uh, you know, I, I listen to some of the stuff because that's my business. I, I, I need to know what's going on out there. And so uh, I actually happen to know one of the reasons that Air America failed. But uh, I'm going to go into a, a deeper reason. The basic reason is that when you listen to conservative talk radio, they are seldom shills for the Republican Party. And I don't even have to mention names. You know who the talk radio hosts are. You can listen to them, and you've got easily a 50-50 chance or better listening to them lambasting the Republican Party. It doesn't mean they're liberal. It means they are conservative, and they are unhappy with the Republican Party for not being conservative enough or not standing to principle or yielding to the Democrats. But you will hear conservative talk hosts regularly trashing uh, the Republican Party. Uh, you will hear them uh, indicting and condemning. But when you listened to Air America, or for that matter, when you listen to either the woman uh, liberal talk radio host or the male, and there really are only two of them that have anything of a show going, with not nearly the ubiquitousness of conservative talk radio, you have to really search. Uh, in, and it's only available in main... Uh, liberal cities. You can hear liberal talk radio in New York and Chicago, uh, parts of Los Angeles, but that's about it. San Francisco, Seattle, but for the most part, you have you real you really struggle to try and bring in liberal talk radio on your dial. Well, the reason for that is very simple, and that is you will never hear a liberal talk show who does not sound like an official spokesman for the Democratic Party. Doesn't exist. You know why Air America flopped? Again, after running through uh, an enormous amount of money from its uh, founding family. Why? Because it's too predictable. You turn it on, and they're shilling for the Democratic Party, or they're shilling for a Democratic president. And all they're doing is uh, um, it's, it's sort of get out the vote for the Democrat. That's what liberal talk radio sounded like. But there's actually a far deeper reason a reason that I thought you might find interesting. But um, before I tell it to you, I want to just once again apologize if you hear any uh, uh, extraneous noises in the background. Um, for uh, several weeks, 
we are um, exploring coastal British Columbia on a small uh, motor vessel, a power boat, and, um, and we are uh, docked in a small harbor on Bowen Island, uh, somewhat north of Vancouver, and uh, there's stuff going on, you know, there's seagulls flying overhead and there's boats coming in and out, so from time to time you will hear that, and, uh, and I apologize, and I hope you're okay with that. Um, just know that your host is um, truly, truly enjoying uh, every moment on this uh, fabulously and breathtakingly beautiful coastline. And so uh, what is it about liberal talk radio that just doesn't work? Well, let's at the same time observe a parallel but uh, inverse phenomenon, and that is that television is largely dominated by liberal politics. Uh, you have many, many shows on uh, television, many of them on the Comedy Channel, many of them on mainstream network channels that are extremely liberal. That's what they are. Uh, you do have Fox News, of course, and Fox Business that are conservative, but that's it. Uh, against that, you've got your MSNBCs and your comedy channels and your uh, your main networks and your CNN. And I don't think there's any disputing. And if you doubt this, by the way, all you need to do is pick a, a topic like, shall we say, the prominent uh, failure and, uh, and plummeting in the polls of a Democratic candidate and watch how that is treated in shall we say, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Fox News, and CNN. And you won't have any difficulty at all spotting the liberal bias on television. Let's imagine that a liberal president uh, does something really stupid, something for which a conservative president was ridiculed, mocked, and humiliated, and see how the various uh, outlets treated when a liberal president does something equally silly, foolish, ignorant, and you'll discover that it gets noticed and commented on in the Wall Street Journal, it gets noticed and commented on in uh, uh, Fox News, but um, CNN virtually ignored, and that is an almost reliable and predictable phenomenon. So television seems to belong to liberalism whereas unquestionably radio does seem to belong entirely to conservatives. Now, before we proceed a little more deeply into that, I have to do a little bit of a side excursion, and I hope you're okay with that. Are you okay with that? I hear nods of assent. I see enthusiastic agreement. Well, then, okay, a little bit of a side excursion. A little bit of a side excursion is that uh, ancient Jewish wisdom insists that the way the good Lord constructed our bodies is to reflect spiritual realities. Now, I fully accept that many of my listeners, and I cherish each and every one of you, I can promise you that, but I fully accept that uh, there are many of you for whom the phrase the good Lord created human beings, um, rings odd. It's not, it's not part of your worldview. Your worldview says that uh, through a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, 
uh, primitive protoplasm uh, turned into uh, printers and plumbers. Over a lengthy period of time, uh, evolution brought uh, chimpanzees uh, to uh, sophisticated human beings. So uh, the truth is you pretty much have to decide in life. You pretty much have to decide which way. You're going to live as if we are touched by the finger of God, unique creatures created by the Creator, or alternatively, you have to live your life as if we are essentially um, the product of materialistic, unintelligent, unaided uh, evolution, one way or the other. And obviously, I really don't mind whichever way you choose, but I just want to make certain, as if, as if you had any doubt, um, where I come from. Regardless, whenever you hear me, I'm, I have all listeners in mind. And so um, when I say something like uh, the way the good Lord created us, you should feel free to insert uh, the way evolution randomly and statistically evolved us. It doesn't matter. Uh, the point, however, that comes out will be equally valid for everybody, I'm sure. And here's the point that comes out. Uh, when I said it, the way I said it was that the Creator uh, shaped us in such a way so that our physical characteristics mirror and echo our spiritual ones. What do I mean? What do I mean by that? Well, think about the difference between the genitalia of men and women. External, uh, for men, external, jutting, arrogance, uh, pronounced, um, very, very visible, um, in, no way, in no way reticent, as it were. It's there on view. Genitalia of women, concealed, modest, invisible. That's one difference, and it goes even more deeply than that. I'm going to pick up right there in just a moment. Quick break, and then further exploration of the differences between male, between, uh, male, female, male and female bodies and further examples of how uh, bodily factors reflect spiritual realities. Hold on right there. Your rabbi will be right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. The black female who accused the thought players of a heinous gang rape. It was complete fabrication. She was just lying, lying, lying. And despite all that, they decided not to press any charges against her because she was a, quote, victim, even though she had not been victimized. And then sometime later, she was arrested for uh, murdering her boyfriend with a butcher knife. So m maybe the law should have actually been applied there. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Well, here we are together again. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And you know how much I appreciate it. My passions are propelled by the viewing numbers, which I watch absolutely obsessively. And uh, we're talking about why it is that uh, talk radio seems to be the province of conservatism, whereas liberalism owns television. 
And I told you that one of the principles of ancient Jewish wisdom is that the way the good Lord created the human body was that its physical characteristics echoed certain spiritual realities. And I showed you uh, the difference between male genitalia and female genitalia, reflecting, as it does, uh, fundamental spiritual distinctions between men and women, uh, particularly in the nature of sexuality. Then we, we go on from there, and uh, we're going to take a look at ears. Now, here's the interesting thing about ears. Not only do we hear through our ears, but our balance mechanism is where? That's right. It's in your ears. The ability to keep ourselves upright, uh, whether it's walking down the street or whether you are a tightrope artist uh, crossing a canyon on a one-inch diameter steel cable, you need your ears and the balance mechanism contained in your inner ear to be working absolutely perfectly. Now, if you were an engineer designing the human body, where would you have placed the balance mechanism? I think, first of all, you probably, more than likely, more than likely, you would have decided that you need two sensors, two sensors, two uh, transducers, two devices, um, and you wouldn't have gone with just one because two with a little spatial separation gives you a much more accurate perception in just the same way that two eyes allow you to perceive depth and two ears allow you to perceive direction very accurately. And now with uh, some species of owls, the two ears are not only separated by the width of the owl's head, but interestingly enough, the owl isn't symmetrical. One ear is placed a little higher than the other. And so now you have spatial separation, not only horizontally, but also vertically. And this is how it is that owls are able to hear the faintest rustle across a field or at the other end of a barn. And even in the dock, they're able to descend and unerringly pounce on an unsuspecting rodent, totally unaware that silent death was um, soaring down from the rafters. And so spatial separation, extremely helpful. Two sensors for balance, yeah. I think as an engineer I would have said, yeah, I think the human body will need two of those. Now, where do I place them? Well, let me tell you one place you definitely do not locate balance sensors. You do not locate them anywhere on the head. Why? Because we move our heads more than we move any of our other organs. Uh, you may move your arms and your legs, but your head is in constant motion. And that means that your balance mechanism believes every time you tilt your head, your balance mechanism wants to say you're falling over and it would want you to take a step to regain your balance. Why doesn't it do that? Well, it's got the equivalent of thousands of lines of software in your brain that corrects for the fact that it's only your head moving and not your entire body. And so I never would have put the balance mechanism in the head because it necessitates all this compensatory software to constantly tell your balance mechanism, no, no, don't worry, it's just the head moving, he's not falling over. I wouldn't have done that. 
I would have put the balance sensors either in the shoulders or the hips. The shoulders have a slight advantage in that they're closer to the brain, and the, the hips a slight advantage in that there really is your center of gravity, it's your center of stability, and your, your balance sensors have much less work to do located right there on uh, your hips. I would have done hips or shoulders. Also, on shoulders and hips, you get good spatial separation. You know, you, you might get uh, a foot or 18 inches, depending on the size of the person. But sticking them in the head, number one, you've only got about six inches of separation. Number two, you've got the movement to the head, confusing things. But nonetheless, the mechanism that allows us to retain our balance is located right in the ears. I've got to tell you that... Um, I have much more problem with evolution as a total explanation for human existence as a scientist than I do as a rabbi. I've got to tell you, as someone who once earned my living as an electronics engineer, I'm much more bothered by this kind of problem that I'm just describing you than by any religious problem. I don't have any religious problems. But um, the idea of why evolution would have stuck the balance mechanism in the ear is truly hard to understand and almost impossible to explain. Anyway, let's, there it is. It's in the ear. Now, let's take a look at the eyes. Here's the really weird thing. Uh, the image cast on your retina by your eyes is upside down. And once again, you have to have, I don't know how much software, but I know it's a whole lot in your brain, or the equivalent of software, to invert the image, to put it right side up. Because your eyes are seeing the world upside down. Your brain has to invert it. And uh, an interesting experiment, it's a bit painful, it makes you a bit nauseous, but absolutely fascinating, and I did it when I was a teenager. Um, you can get glasses that uh, turn the world upside down. You put those glasses on, and it's nauseating. Trying to walk um, is very difficult because everything is upside down that you're seeing. Well, here's the funny thing. After you've worn it, and in my case it was for about a day and a half, everything started coming right way up again. In other words, I've just proven that my brain can write software to turn an inverted image right way up. And this is a, a very significant thing because the, uh, the problem is uh, that as soon as I then took them off, as soon as I took those glasses off about a day and a half later, guess what? The world was once again upside down, this time with no glasses, because my brain had adjusted. My brain had come up with a mechanism for putting the world back right again. And then when I took those glasses away, that mechanism now turned the world upside down. And so once again, I had a half a day of nausea before it started coming back again and uh, returning to normal. It's very, very weird sensation, but unforgettable because it really does help me understand exactly what's going on there. And so I again ask myself, if I was designing the human body and I'm doing the eye, why would I have had a simple lens that would cast an inverted image on the retina? Why would I set things up in such a way that uh, the software is going to need to compensate? I mean, why not just put a compound lens in there? Why not? Why not just put a lens that puts in a right-side-up image, and that way there's no problems? And so what it boils down to is that the eyes 
cast a vision of an upside-down world, your brain has to put it right. Your ears not only enable you to convert sound waves into music or speech and process by your brain into meaningful communication, but uh, it also is the center of balance. And here is what a text, a 2,000-year-old text from ancient Jewish wisdom explains. Explains that you've got to understand that what you see through your eyes is always an upside-down version of reality. What you get through your ears is much more balanced. What do I mean by this? Well, there was a time when American newspapers would never publish images of corpses, never show images of dead people, because it was considered to be over-intense. It played on the emotions of the reader. And newspapers were meant to appeal to the mind and the intellect of the reader. You see, my friends, what we're talking about is essentially a struggle between the heart and the head. And newspapers used to pride themselves on appealing to the head. The fact is that you cannot ask anybody to be rational and uh, intellectual and emotionally detached when you show them a dead person. Because almost any sensitive human being recoils in horror and sorrow and pity at the sight of a dead human being. And so when, imagine we have to analyze a war going on, right? Think of World War II. World War II, although the, uh, the army was extremely, the military was very careful with death figures, very careful about releasing them because it's understandable. People are emotional about losing American soldiers, and uh, it makes us all far less able to endure the war. And cries for ending the war would start before, while, while the problem was still there. And so there were zero pictures of bodies of dead soldiers. There were zero pictures of American dead American soldiers coming home in coffins. They didn't show this sort of stuff. And uh, World War II was prosecuted until its final conclusion and victory in Europe in 1944 and uh, in the Pacific in 1945. But that couldn't have happened. Now, contrast that with the Vietnam War. What happened in Vietnam was entirely different. By that time, they were showing pictures. By that time, they were showing American soldiers coming home in their coffins. And America was traumatized by death in its living room because you're asking people to be able to look at the ultimate pain of a dead human being and remain detached emotionally and purely rational. You're asking people to confront death visually through their eyes and saying to them, we want you to work this with your head, not your heart. Totally and completely impossible. You see, the heart is tied to the eyes, and the head is tied to the ears. And the principle in ancient Jewish wisdom is, if you want to get a balanced perspective on something, for heaven's sake, don't look at pictures of it, because those go straight 
to your eyes your and to your heart. If you want to get a balanced perspective that enables you to evaluate it with your head, you must use your ears. Now, let me just point out that when you read something, I just want you to understand this. Although you're using your eyes to read the words, that is nonetheless using ears, not eyes. Do you get that? Eyes are images. But when you read a word, you are converting that word into a specific sound, a word, and you're interpreting it intellectually. And that's why it's very important to understand that uh, reading is a head process, not a heart process. Looking at television, looking at pictures, looking at photographs, that's all heart. That is not head. And so let us imagine that uh, the head of a company has the terribly painful decision of does he allow the company to go broke and close its doors or does he reduce the size of the workforce? Now, I would advise any CEO faced with that very tough predicament to do that calculation in his office with numbers, with spreadsheets, with reports. But the minute he has to look at the face of a distraught human being confronting the possibility of being without a job, you cannot ask any human being to make a rational, logical, emotionally detached calculation only with a head under those circumstances simply not possible you can't ask it and so we understand the difference between head and heart corresponding to the difference between ears and eyes my website is uh, com. love you to go over there and it's one of the ways we have of staying in touch with you uh, subscribe to my free weekly email called Thought Tools. You may already be on that. If not, please get on that. And um, you will be supplied with a regular weekly spiritual strategy that you can apply in your financial lives, in your uh, business lives, in your family lives, in your social lives, your faith lives. And so go to youneedarabbi.com, subscribe to Thought Tools. And I'd also like you to explore the resources that my wife and I have prepared for you also all visible on our website. Um, in just a moment, we will return, so stay with me as we continue exploring the difference between eyes and ears and why that explains why it is that talk radio is almost never found in the liberal arena. Do you remember Air America? It lasted for a very short space of time, consumed vast sums of money from its sponsors, Air America was supposed to be a liberal talk radio network. Blah, bombed, flopped, gone, dead, finished. Why? Why does liberal talk radio not work? Conservative talk radio works, doesn't need government sponsorship, doesn't need national public radio. Talk radio works on its own merits. Why? We're going to explain coming back in just a moment. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Don't go away. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Jay Severin. Hillary Clinton isn't just losing to anybody. She's losing to Boyne Sanders. And I'm telling you, she either reverses this trend. She's also losing to Republicans in key states all over the country. The matchups, the Republicans are beating her. And you know she must have the ability to win or her base will run from her. Run from her. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi revealing how the world really works. That's what we do here, and uh, you know how much I appreciate you listening. Uh, make sure you have a chance to visit my website and, and be in touch. You know, one of the things you can do at my website, which you'll remember, is you need a rabbi.com. One of the things you do is uh, shoot me a, a, an email. Right there on the website is a tab marked Contact Us. And it's true, I really do read every single one of the letters I receive from you. And uh, as some of you have discovered, I actually respond to about a third of them in person. And uh, that takes a lot of time. Uh, sometimes uh, it might be a month or two late, but uh, I actually do respond to a, a large number of them. And um, and also, if there's topics you want me to deal with on the podcast or questions you might have, all there at the website, you need a rabbi.com. Okay, so uh, in the last segment, we explored some ancient Jewish wisdom on the role that the eyes and the ears play and how it is that the physical structure of these remarkable organs reveal certain immutable spiritual realities about them. In the same way that the ears contain the balance mechanism in order to convey the idea that what you hear through the ears is essentially balanced. You can retain your balance because it's all coming through the ear. If you get stuff through the eye, it can throw you off balance because eyes, in fact, distort reality. In fact, the image is upside down. You can't get a bigger distortion of reality than that. And um, if you don't believe me that a more balanced perspective on reality is obtained through the ears and that the eyes persuade you emotionally instead of intellectually, I have only two questions to ask you. Surely you know a man who became involved with an entirely unsuitable woman. Maybe he married her. Maybe it led to all kinds of difficulties, unhappiness and misery. Maybe even eventually a divorce. But just think, right? I'm sure that each and every one of us knows at least one man who got involved with a woman that was entirely inappropriate for him. I have one simple question for you, my friends. Did he fall for the way she sounded or the way she looked? Did he use his eyes in becoming infatuated with her? Or did he use his ears? Was it lengthy telephone conversations that led to his obsession? I don't think so. I think you'll probably agree that when men get involved with a woman entirely unsuitable in many ways, it is always the eye that is responsible, not the ears. It's one of the reasons I encourage young men who consult me on these topics to try as much as possible to have phone conversations, long phone conversations with women before they become deeply involved because you can develop a much more balanced perspective before your emotions get involved. Second question. You know there's an entire industry of storage units, right? They usually locate them in undesirable real estate. So if there's some land directly under a high-voltage transmission line or right next to uh, some noisy area, 
one of the prime real estate uses to which that can be put is um, self-storage units, where you go along and you rent anything from a cubicle to a garage-sized little mini warehouse, and you can come and go as you please, and you can store whatever you want there. You know what they, those things are used for? Ladies and gentlemen, those things exist because we buy stuff we don't need. We all do it. We buy stuff we have no long-term use for, and then we have nowhere to put it because we don't have that much space in our houses. We don't have enough room to store all the stuff we buy. So you go along and you rent a little mini warehouse, and you rent this uh, you know, 8-foot by 4-foot by 8-foot unit, and you stick all your stuff in there. That's what it's for. Now, again, I ask you, when you buy stuff you don't really need, eyes or ears? You know the answer to that. And if you're in any way hesitant, I ask you to think for just a moment, where do they put Home Shopping Network? On radio or television? Is it on radio that somebody says, now I'm holding in my hand a uh, useless piece of junky jewelry, but it's very glittery, and it's a lovely gold color, and it's got this clasp that makes a satisfying click when you close it? You're going to love this. Only $29.00 in three equal payments of $15 each. Easy. No, you never hear that on radio. It's always on television because you can manipulate people's emotions visually far easier than you can orally. You get it, right? And I think you can see where we're going. Liberalism, my friends, is uh, based on emotions. Conservatism is far more intellectual. Liberalism is based on the heart, conservatism on the head. You'll remember a period where in, um, in American uh, criminal justice system, the uh, pity always lay with the villain, and the villain became the victim. And there was concern about uh, over-aggressive policing, and there was concern that villains were getting too much jail time and, oh, no, they're actually being executed for multiple murders. Why does that happen? I'll tell you why. Because the, the true victim of the crime isn't in court. He's probably dead and buried or robbed, raped, mugged, or murdered. But who's standing in court? It's always a guy dressed in his Sunday best suit with his head looking down and he's looking distraught, and his mom tells the judge, it cannot be him. He is innocent. He's always been a good boy. There has to be a mistake. You cannot put him away for 20 years. Who'll take care of me? And you're asking judges and juries to be confronted by the visual, powerful image of a suffering human being, even though your head should tell you that he's a vicious criminal, and your head should tell you that mothers never see the evil committed by their children. To every mother, her child is a choir boy. Every mother thinks of her child as a saint, virtually, almost, almost every mom. But... Uh, you, you expect a judge and a jury to listen to or watch a weeping mother 
and to look at a distraught, uh, sad-looking criminal, and where do you think their emotions draw them? It's one of the reasons that, uh, that it wasn't very long before uh, courts began to allow victim statements because they realized how overboard the system had gone and that judges and juries were being swayed by the emotional images in front of them. But uh, this is, um, is, is a very standard thing. When you allow a visual image to intrude, it almost inevitably overwhelms the verbal message very, very strongly. And that's why even on television advertising, you don't remember much of what they say. The image is seared indelibly into your brain. The image really works. You know, it's, again, it's the power of movies. And, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, talk radio used to do uh, drama, crime drama, and uh, also comedy. And it was a very different experience from watching television. First of all, you could be doing something else while that was going on. It wasn't the same waste of time. Number two, there was good in it as well. You know what it was? Developing the imagination. You see, our imaginations are an extremely important part of our abilities. Uh, even if you're an entrepreneur, think about it for a moment. If your imagination underperforms, then you literally miss out op on opportunities because you don't imagine things that you could accomplish. You don't imagine things that need doing. Your imagination is atrophied. Your imagination, and you must think of your imagination as a muscle. And like all muscles, imagination requires exercise. Watching television, watching images, utterly destroys your imagination. Your mother may not have put it in exactly these terms, but if your mother went to the same mothering college that my mother went to, then she would have said to you, stop watching television and go and read a book. And as a kid, I never understood, what's the difference? I mean, if I'm going to be spending half an hour relaxing, I'd much rather watch TV than read the book. That was her whole point. And that is, TV is an utterly lazy, passive activity. It does nothing for you, excepting damages your imagination. But watching, but reading a book forces you to exercise that imagination. It's one of the reasons that people are very often disappointed when they go and see a movie of a book they loved. You read a book a couple of times, you really enjoyed it, it was a big favorite, you go and see the movie, disappointment. Why? Because it cannot live up to your imagination. You imagined the entire scenario of that whole book. You, you saw what the people looked like and where the action took place. In your mind's eye, it was all there thanks to your imagination. But now, all shattered, all damaged, totally unusable, and uh, all gone. That, again, is a difference between the eyes and between the ears. Uh, using your ears is powerful, it's positive, it's good. Listening to, uh, to a, a drama on radio, and it's almost impossible to find anymore, but there are old-time stuff available still. You listen to those things, and they're a lot of fun. They're wonderful. And at least you come away. You don't feel as if this was a waste of your time in any way whatsoever. But, um, but when you watch, it changes everything. And what you have to understand clearly now is that liberalism is the creed of the emotion. And that's why it is. Compassion is the defining ideology of liberalism. Everything is compassion. Don't you have any compassion? In fact, 
uh, the stupid Republicans years back started talking about compassionate conservatism, hoping to steal a page out of the book of liberals. But it was a dumb thing to do because, first of all, liberals do liberalism better than conservatives do. And number two, it yielded the high ground. It suggested that conservatism was lacking in compassion. Conservatism is cruel and heartless and cold. But we are going to come up with a new thing called compassionate conservatism. It was a disaster. It was a calamity. And, um, and I was in a position, as it so happened back then, uh, to advise the conservative uh, leader at the time who spoke in terms of compassionate conservatism. I truly begged him. I begged him not to do it, and um, he did it anyway, and it didn't help him. Didn't do any, did him no good, and it harmed the movement of uh, conservatism such as it is. And, uh, and liberalism focuses on compassion. That's what it does. Compassion is the big thing. And um, I'm getting a look from my wife here that suggests that she has something to say. So, uh, Mrs. Lappin, was, uh, was there something you were going to add to that? Oh, no, she says, I was just surprised. I'm not sure by what, but I've learned over the years that when Mrs. Lappin uh, gives me the look, guys, you know what the look is, right? Now, the nice thing about listening to a podcast instead of watching me on television is that you can use your imagination. When I tell you I got the look, then you know exactly what it's like. But if we were on television and I had to show you the look, it just wouldn't be as good because you wouldn't be using your imagination. Now, um, she, she very often, oh, and all the time, she adds, we usually, we compile a lot of the material I do on the podcasts is, is work that we've compiled together. And sometimes when she hears me recording it, uh, she uh, thinks of a, of, of a way I can explain it more effectively or, or present it uh, more pleasantly. But, um, and I mistakenly thought she had something for us right there. So, um, uh, there we've got it. Uh, when we come back, quick wrap-up of uh, liberalism and conservatism, talk radio or radio versus television, and on to money in politics and on to the question uh, of, here it is, if it's okay to carve up tiny little humans and sell their body parts, why is it not okay for fully adult sentient human beings to sell their organs on the open market? Somebody wants to sell a kidney willingly and voluntarily for a sum of money. Why is this illegal in the United States? But it isn't illegal to sell the organs of tiny humans that did not give their permission. Is something wrong here? I'll explain more as soon as we come back. Thanks for listening. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and like General Douglas MacArthur, I shall return. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. Why don't they try to hug the incoming That's boys? what they want. That's what we're supposed to do. When, it, comes, it, out. when it gets to about here, start hugging, and then you yeah. hug the bullet as it enters your body. Okay. That's just one way to handle it. I'm going to throw that one Or out you dodge the bullets and get to the suspect and give the suspect a big hug. And just tell him you love him. Just tell him you love him. Oh, that's great. I love you. That's great. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. 
We're back for the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My website, youneedarabbi.com, and uh, I look forward to welcoming you there as well. And uh, we now, I think, have a clearer picture, I hope, of why it is that liberalism dominates television, whereas talk radio is very much owned by conservatism, to the chagrin, to the dismay, to the disgust of liberalism. They cannot understand why liberal talk radio simply doesn't work. It either has to be on government-subsidized NPR, National Public Radio, uh, or it fails. But it has zero economic reality to it. And uh, the nice thing about economic reality is that it forces you to deliver what people want. That, my friends, is a good thing, not a bad thing, unless you are a a self-proclaimed artist with a diseased ego pouring your maudlin production out on an unsuspecting public, well, that's different. Then obviously you want the government to subsidize your pathetic childhood scribblings. But uh, for anybody else, we love the marketplace because it forces individuals and companies to deliver what we actually want, what we can use, what we can desire instead of what you think we should have. I can assure you without a shadow of a doubt that when I am in charge, the National Endowment of the Arts, gone, defunded, in a millisecond, finished, over, there's no way I will take your tax money and present it into the palms, the outstretched, grubby palms of the select and anointed artistic few. No siree. Any artist who can't persuade people to buy his stuff, as far as I'm concerned, can go and get a job. No more National Endowment for the Arts. No more National Public Radio. When I'm in charge, you can hold me to that. No more National Public Radio. Gone. When I'm in charge, no more public broadcasting service. No more government-sponsored television. If it stands by itself, that's great. If it doesn't, why don't you just watch the BBC? You like NP? Just watch BBC. You'll be happy. It's fine. And guess what? Uh, The United States government doesn't sponsor them. Um, In England, it works a little bit differently. People have to buy licenses. If they own radios and television, they buy licenses, and that funds the, uh, the, at least the government broadcasting services. But we're not in England. Uh, We're in North America. So um, the, uh, the idea then clearly is that um, liberalism is a credo of compassion. Its entire focus is the, the subject of compassion. And every decision in liberalism is based on short-term compassion. What's in front of me right now? Poor people, give them money. Uh, children that aren't being taken care of, give them money. Conservatives say, wait a second. There's a problem here, and it's a problem involving the families. It's a problem involving the parents. Children, hungry children, is not the fault of the United States people. Hungry children, not the fault of the United States government. Hungry children, not the fault of state government. Hungry children, not my fault. My children aren't hungry. No, there is a social problem here. There is a collapse of families and values. You don't solve everything by shoveling money at it, unless 
your defining credo is compassion. In that case, that's exactly what you do. And when you run out of your money, you start shoveling other people's money at it, which you then discover is a whole lot more fun than using your own money. Hence, the insatiable appetite of liberal government for your tax dollars. That's right. And uh, talking of your tax dollars in and government, there is all this fear about money in government. And I must tell you that it is not a fear that I share. I'm really okay with people spending as much money as they can or wish to on their political campaigns. Does that mean that we're likely to get richer people in government? Probably. I hope so. I'd like that idea. Because the overwhelming majority of rich people made that money for themselves with the uh, very conspicuous exception of the Kennedy family. Um, it truly is hard to think of a single Kennedy except the much-despised Joe Kennedy, who actually made an honest dollar in their whole lives, honestly. I mean, other than when, when um, uh, JFK served in the military and, uh, and his older brother served, that, you know, that's making an honest dollar. You get paid in the military. But other than that, what Kennedy ever earned a living? You see, I'm okay with people who've made a lot of money serving in government and winning elections. I'm really okay with that. Number one, they've got a much better idea of how the world really works. They've got a much better idea, and they're far less likely to destroy and damage than uh, those who are doing public service, those who seek to serve the people by what? by becoming public employees with fat pensions and fat paychecks and fat perks and health care you wish you had. Yeah, no, my friends, I'm, I'm really okay with money in politics. And I, I don't see why so many people have this knee-jerk reaction. What a terrible thing it is. Oh, money and why? Why are you okay with um, people who have money um, going on nicer vacations than other people, right? They spend their money doing what they want. Why is it so terrible if somebody wants to spend their money getting elected? And again, if you don't like it, don't vote for them. But why is this intrinsically wrong? Why must government step in? Well, I'll tell you one reason is that it protects entrenched interests. It makes it much harder to dislodge sitting, uh, sitting uh, representatives. They're in, they've got it, and they're perfectly happy to pass laws and regulations, making it impossible for other people to spend money. Why? Because they like their jobs. And, and that's why it is uh, dishonest and uh, disingenuous when they speak about, I'm in public service. No, you're not. You're taking care of yourself. Show me one politician who served a stint in Congress and didn't come out richer than he went in. Come on, one, name me one. It's a lot of money in public service, and they like those jobs. They want to keep those jobs. It's very simple, and that's one of the reasons. Oh, money corrupts. Oh, people shouldn't be allowed to spend. Limits on spending, limits on giving. Why should there be a limit on giving? If I've made a lot of money, 
and uh, I want to support a certain politician, yes, in the hope that he will pass legislation that favors things I care about, sure. Why not? But you and all the other people can still vote against him. So why are you worried about me using my money as much as I want to? Why should there be limits on how much I can give a politician? Makes absolutely no sense. It serves nobody but the sitting power structure. We should be comfortable allowing people to raise as much money, give as much money, spend as much money to get into public office. Just think about it this way, my friends. Could it produce a worse category of politician than we have now? Could it really make things any worse? Do you really think that? I doubt it. And so when I'm in charge, no more limitations on, chari- on uh, political gifts, no more limitations on how much politicians can spend of their own money, no more limits on, on money in politics at all. I really don't think that the amount of money that somebody has made is a bad measure of that person's contact with reality. It's certainly not going to be any worse than what we get right now. And so I'd like to see all these financial regulations done away with in politics. Give your favorite politician as much as you like. Let your favorite politician spend everything he's got on getting into office, staying into office, using his money for advertising. And if the electorate is so dumb as to be influenced by 30-second television commercials that cost a small fortune for political campaigns to run, people are so dumb as to be swayed by that, then they deserve the government they've got. It's as simple as that. But I think the playing field would be evened by allowing as much money as people want to spend in politics and to do away with these government regulations that serve nobody except those already sitting in the seats of power. And here's another area where uh, financial regulations make no sense whatsoever, and uh, I will be able to explain to you why they're there. In spite of the fact that it's illogical, it's nonsensical, it's stupid, I'll still be able to explain to you why they're there. What am I talking about? The laws that make it illegal to sell an organ. Somebody, uh, why shouldn't, well, for one thing, let's imagine that um, somebody is uh, on his deathbed. And he says, I'm selling my heart, or I'm going to sell whatever other organs are needed. I'm going to sell this. This way I'm going to be able to leave my family something. I wasn't able to make much money in life. I wasn't able to leave my children as much as I would like. And so now uh, I don't think I've got long to go. I'm going to sell. Does anybody want to buy my heart? Does anybody want to buy my liver? Does anybody want to buy my spleen or my appendix? Whatever it is, sell it. Let people buy it. No, this is illegal. How about kidney? Right? You can you can do without one kidney, right? So, and you know, there there are wonderful cases of siblings that give away kidneys to help siblings, or even strangers have sometimes done that to save the life of somebody who's on a dialysis machine. But what is wrong if somebody says, you know what, I'm willing to do without one of my kidneys, but I don't want to give it away. I want to sell it. That's what I want to do. And he can even hold an auction. 
and people who uh, have the ability to purchase a kidney should be able to go ahead and do it and get that kidney um, replacement transplanted instantly and immediately. What is so terrible about this? Everyone has agreed it's a free market transaction. Nobody was coerced. What's wrong with this? And obviously there must be something weird going on because the country as a whole clearly seems to have very little problem with Planned Parenthood selling the parts of tiny human beings that's murdered. And that's okay. Those little human beings did not give permission for their organs to be sold. But that's okay. But if adults, fully sentient adults, give permission and want to sell their organs, that's no good? What's going on here, my friends? This is insanity. But no. No, no, it's not really insanity. All of these things can be explained. We just need to understand them from a deep spiritual perspective. And that's exactly what we're going to try and do as soon as we come back here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, passionately dedicated to revealing to you how the world really works. Yes, back in just a moment. Hold on right there. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Chris Salcedo. We embolden our enemies and we slap the faces of our friends under Obama. So, if you're some of those liberals out there who say, I believe Barack Obama. I think he's going to do all the great things. Uh, this treaty prevents Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and, and Obama really needs it this time. Chris Salcedo. Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, and thank you so much for listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, where I cherish each and every listener and very much appreciate you investing the time to listen to this uh, podcast. And uh, we, uh, we're talking about uh, money in politics and then the question of money for organs. Uh, why is it that there is such widespread distaste for the idea of selling organs on the open market? Why is this unacceptable? Why do people feel more comfortable with a governmental system of allocation, which is really what it is? After all, there are panels, and I'm not going to call them death panels because that's a sensationalistic term, for something which absolutely has to happen when there's a lot of people wanting a limited commodity and you don't allow the free market to operate. The answer is panels. You can call it allocation panels. Uh, in wartime, they call it rationing panels. And it really doesn't matter what you call it. But the bottom line is, when there are a lot of people wanting transplants of organs and there's a limited supply and you're not going to allow people to bid with money, the only alternative is that you're going to have government committees that will decide. And sure enough, that's exactly what we do have. And that's in the background. I don't know if you heard that, but uh, there was a uh, boat puttering by. Yes, because indeed, uh, I am still enjoying a family boating trip 
in a small motor vessel off the coast of British Columbia, and uh, we are uh, docked for the night, and there are all kinds of uh, boats coming in. Now, where, where we are, one of the best ways of getting in and out of some of these remote islands and bays and inlets is by seaplane. And so for anybody who's interested in seaplanes like I am, this is the seaplane watcher's paradise. And the basic workhorse here is a de Havilland Otter. Now, that airplane, I'm thinking, has got to be about 50 years old. I'm, I, I, I do believe the last de Havilland Otter seaplane was built. It was built, many, it, was, it was built decades ago. But these planes just keep flying, and there are companies specializing now in turning out spare parts so is that uh, I doubt that any part of an airframe, of a, any, and there's hundreds of them here, I doubt that any of them are actually flying on original aluminum. I'm pretty sure everything is, over the years gets replaced. So much so, the engines, if they even now carry turbo en turbine engines, uh, remarkable turboprops, actually. And uh, that was certainly not the airplane engine that, with which these aircraft were originally equipped. Anyway, there was a, a brief excursion for the uh, two or three uh, airline, aircraft enthusiasts in our listening audience. Are there more of you? Let me know, by the way. Go, go to my website, youneedarabbi.com, and uh, click on the uh, Contact Us tab. Let me know. Let me know what you're an enthusiast of or uh, uh, what turns you on, what, what in ignites your passions. Uh, I'd love to know. Helps me helps me prepare these podcasts and makes it easier. And so, uh, uh, why is it then that there is such widespread revulsion for the idea of selling parts? And uh, I'll tell you what I think the answer is. Once again, liberalism controls the culture in this area, and the idea is nobody but nobody should get better health care than anybody else. This is one of the reasons that uh, Barack Obama managed to squeeze his uh, Obamacare program. It's going to turn out to be a disaster retroactively. Uh, history will decree it to be one of the dreadful milestones in America's uh, 21st century decay. Uh, it will turn out to have been a disaster medically and culturally and financially. Remember you heard that here first. Uh, and who knows, major parts of it, if not all of it, might well be uh, repealed. Nonetheless, it passed. You want to know why? Because it was a step on the road to socialized medicine. And uh, liberalism believes that everybody should be equal. Now, in order to understand this fully, my friends, I think it's necessary that we all fully grasp the central principle that there are certain incompatible ideas in the culture, right? You cannot be both a, um, a miser and a spendthrift. You can't be somebody at the same time who spends without control and somebody who never spends and hoards every penny. Those are two incompatible ideas. You either have to pick one or the other, or you have to try and be something in between. And that's obviously where most sane people try and position themselves. Uh, you cannot be both cruel and compassionate at the same time. You have to decide which one. And most of us try and position ourselves appropriately. What do I mean by that? Well, cruelty is required when you have to discipline a child. Let's imagine your four-year-old uh, was playing in the middle of a busy four-lane highway. 
and you managed to rescue him and you brought him back, you need to discipline him. It's going to take some cruelty, but somehow you've got to drive it into this mischievous child that he must never, ever again play in the road or go anywhere near the road without you, right? And to do that takes a certain amount of cruelty. Now, you might say, well, I'm being cruel to be kind. Yeah, I understand, obviously. But uh, the actual action of disciplining requires you to summon up reserves of cruelty. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that single mothers have enormous trouble raising boys. And I'm going to explain that in, in greater depth. But if you think about it, I'm sure you grasp it. Right? Boys require firm uncompromising discipline it's very difficult for moms to deliver that and that's why one of the time-honored phrases in american family life is just you wait till your father comes home and mom's absolutely right she's basically saying this requires masculine discipline i'm not the right person to do it you need your father to make sure you never forget this lesson he'll take care of it and you tremble in your boots because you know she's absolutely right. Isn't that so? And so uh, that is exactly uh, what it is we're talking about. There are certain incompatibilities. You have to choose one or the other, or you have to recognize that those extremes represent the extremes of a spectrum, and you decide there are certain times I want to be compassionate. There's really a deserving person who needs me to dig into my pocket and hand over a wad of cash to help him out of a predicament. There are other times where there is a panhandler on the street hassling passers-by, and he comes along and asks you for something, and you say no. That requires cruelty because you look at this uh, human being in his rags, and you feel bad. You feel compassion, but it's a wrong compassion. Under those circumstances, what's required is a little cruelty. And you have to say to him, I'm not giving you. I gave you last week and I gave you the week before. Each time you told me a lie, what you needed it for, I'm not giving you anymore. And that action is a cruel action. It doesn't mean it's an incorrect action. Only a liberal believes that compassion must be practiced all the time, everywhere. A conservative says, I move backwards and forwards along the cruelty-compassion spectrum. When I have to discipline a child, I'm cruel. When I am serving on a jury and I need to put a, uh, a murderer away for life, I have to exercise cruelty. And when I'm taking care of my infant, I have to exercise compassion, and so on and so forth. Well, two other quantities that uh, are incompatible with one another are uh, equality and freedom. You can't have them both. If you are going to insist that everyone in society must be equal, then you are going to have to restrict their freedoms. You're going to have to make sure. And don't forget, make no mistake about it, that taking away per a person's money is impacting their freedom. You get that, right? Um, my bank account is my freedom. That's what gives me freedom. You take away my money. And you may call it taxation, you may call it social security, you may call it withholding, call it whatever uh, uh, euphemistic or sanitized term you wish to use, but it's taking away your money. And taking away your money restricts your freedom. The only way to make everybody equal is to take away from some and give to others, according to a government committee or a government formula. And in so doing, 
Freedom is being restricted in order to obtain equality. On the other hand, if you believe in freedom, then you are inevitably going to have a lack of equality. Why? Not everybody has the same impulse control. Some people are going to spend all their money and they're going to end up with very little. Other people are going to save and invest. But if everyone has the freedom to live their life as they wish, you will end up with inequality. It's not a mistake, it's not an accident that liberalism, which is the younger sister of socialism, which is the younger sister of communism, which is the younger sister of the political credo of the Tower of Babel in the 11th chapter of Genesis. Well, in all of that, equality is the goal. And when equality is the goal, then freedom tumbles by the wayside. When equality is all important, and it is right for folks whose political credo is compassion, then equality is the best thing because it is painful for people to look and feel unequal to other people, right? Uh, if you remember your childhood or if you have children, you will remember the phrase, he's got more than me, it's not fair, right? It hurts. And so if you're compassionate, you want equality because that way everybody is the same. Nobody's going to feel hurt and pained and humiliated by not having what everyone else has. It's not how the world really works, but it is how liberalism works, and it is how socialism works. And so they exercise it in all the important areas. The housing, in the socialized vision of the world, government housing is what works best. And government housing is distinguished by nothing more than its lack of distinctiveness. In other words, if you live in government housing, if you are unfortunate enough to have to be dependent upon government housing, you might have discovered that you are not allowed to paint your front door a different color. You're not allowed to put out window boxes of plants. Everything has to be dull, gray, conformity, identical. That's a requirement. Why? What's the concept? The concept is equality. That's how important it is. Everybody must have equality. Everybody must be exactly the same. And so they believe that very much in housing. They also like it in transport, which is why they like public transport. As soon as you allow people to have cars, somebody will have a BMW or a Cadillac. Uh, not exactly in the same category, but okay, close. And somebody else might have a Yugo if you remember that awful excrescence of a vehicle manufactured by Yugoslavia a number of years ago. Uh, but, okay, fine, not, not that. Maybe you'll have a Fiat um, or, or, or something, and that they can't stand. They cannot stand the idea of some people riding to work in luxury while other people ride in a pathetic car. And so the answer... Everybody has to ride on the light rail. Everybody has to ride on the buses. Or you may all ride bicycles to work. That's also acceptable. But the goal is nobody should be able to be better off than other people. And my friends, in few areas is this idea more emphatically 
obsessed with than in medical care. The one area where they absolutely do not want anybody to have better medical care than anyone else is medical care. That is essential. It's one of the hearts of liberalism. It's why when England had a Labour government, one of the very first things they did was national health care. And, of course, foolish citizens can always be lured into paying for national health care because they love this notion that somebody else will pay for the goodies that you get. And, unfortunately, they're not far-sighted enough and not intelligent enough and not able to think with their heads instead of their hearts to say, wait a sec, there is no free lunch. And if somebody is promising me free medical care, there's going to be some other way I'm going to have to pay for it, and I'm not sure that that's a deal I want. Medical care, everybody has to have the same. And exactly how that works is what I'll explain in the next segment coming right back. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Clients of this company walked away because they felt like this was political grandstanding. But also some of them said, why would I expect you to have employees who service my needs as well if you're paying everybody 70 grand? So if everyone's making 70 grand at the low end of the scale, why are they going to push themselves, stay that extra night or put in those extra hours? Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, everybody. Your radio rabbi's back. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. That's right. And uh, who better than your rabbi to reveal the things that never change. One of the things that never changes is money. Money is not a recent invention. Money is a reality of the human condition. You see, the bottom line is that each and every one of us is born wanting to get as much as we can with as little effort as possible. That's how it is. That's how we've created We'd like as much as we can with as little effort as possible. And so the good Lord set up a system of money. And one of the reasons that uh, money emerged in those societies that were most founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic, whereas countries that lacked the idea of a Judeo-Christian ethic uh, very often continued using barter into the 19th century, had no such thing as currency. Or they, they used things like salt, or they, they used various things to sort of serve as mediums of exchange. But the idea of imparting abstract economic value to an object of no intrinsic value, that is a unique feature of Western civilization. And it has a lot to do with why it is that Western civilization has become the envy of the world. When I say the envy of the world, I don't mean theoretically. I mean the way people vote with their boots, right? People seek to move to Western societies, whether they are Muslims 
where they come from, Africa, wherever they are, the traffic is always towards westernized societies. There's a reason for that. And part of that reason was that money was part of the cultural heritage of Western civilization. And uh, the idea is that um, money is obtained in only one way. Now, yes, uh, there are bandits, there are robbers, there are confiscatory governments. Yeah, there are definitely people who take your money. But there's really only one way to make money, and that is to please another human being. You could actually say, if you were me, that money is God's way of incentivizing us all to do good for all of God's other children. And profit is the proof that we succeeded. Think about it. If you have $100 in your pocket and you did not hold up a convenience store to get it, and you didn't mug a little old lady and take her pocketbook and therein you found $100? No. And you didn't hold up somebody on the street with a gun and take his money? No. And you didn't defraud anybody else? No. How did you get that $100? I don't know the details, but I do know the answer. The answer is you pleased another human being who gave it to you will willingly and voluntarily. I don't know if it was a boss or a customer or a client. Maybe it was a relative. I don't know. But there's some human being in whose life you made a positive difference, who gave you that money. And that's why money is such a wonderful thing. It is evidence that you did good to another human being. Now, uh, my friends, I, uh, I'm going to ask you an awkward question. It's not meant to... Uh, create unease. It's not meant to make anybody feel bad, but I want you to deal with this with your heads, not your hearts. If you deal with your hearts, you're going to be angry at what I'm going to say. I don't want you to be angry. I want you to deal with this entirely with your heads. You ready? Who has done more good for more people? Mother Teresa, the saintly hospice keeper in Calcutta, or Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, one of the richest men in the world? The question is a simple one. Who has done more good for more human beings? Now, I know what your instinct is. How can you even say such a thing? Rabbi Lapid, if you only knew what a saintly woman Mother Teresa really was. Did you hear me use the word saintly? I, I'm not talking about who's more saintly. I'm not asking who is a bigger saint. I'm not asking who is a better heart. I'm not asking who is a purer person. I never asked those questions because I would never know the answer. Only God can see into the human heart. I would never presume to be able to do that. But I asked a very specific question. Who did more good to more of God's children, Mother Teresa or Bill Gates? Now, think about it for a second. How many people has Mother Teresa helped? I don't know the answer, and uh, perhaps you don't either. But we can figure it out approximately. I, I don't know how long she's been working in Cal Calcutta, but let's say it's 100 years. How many people can Mother Teresa help 
a year. Well, how many people can she help a day? A hundred? How many people can she impact a day? A hundred people a day? Well, that would mean uh, 365,000 people a year. And let's imagine that uh, she was doing that for a hundred years. I mean, if that's really the number of people she impacted, so it's uh, 365,000 multiplied by a hundred, and that comes, I think, to 36 million, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so at the absolute maximum, the number of people that Mother Teresa impacted, the number of people she helped, 36 million. In reality, right, there's no way she's dealing with 100 people a day. In reality, she hasn't been doing it for 100 years. And so I think we can agree that the figure is somewhere between 100 and 30 million. Probably the true figure is somewhere around about 3 million, most likely. But we can all agree that it's not more than 30 million. Now, how many people has Bill Gates improved the lives of? Well, um, they've sold a half a billion copies, like more than 500 million copies of Office, and several times that of Windows. And if it didn't improve your life, you needn't abort it. You bought it because it enabled you to be more productive or have more fun or connect with more people or whatever it was. And you could have gone and bought uh, Apple products from Steve Jobs. That was a choice. Or you could have gone with Linux operating system. There's all kinds of stuff you could have done. But you bought Microsoft uh, software because it suited you. It was good for you. Notwithstanding the blue screen of death when something goes wrong with Windows, but it's still, am I saying it's perfect? No, of course not. I'm saying you bought it voluntarily and you, you're not an idiot. You wouldn't have done that if it didn't improve your life to an extent greater than the value suggested by the money you paid for it. And so the number of people that Bill Gates have, has impacted positively, the number of people whose lives Bill Gates improved is in the hundreds of millions probably billions most likely and le that's not even counting all the people who earn livings by working at Microsoft it's not counting all the people who have companies successfully selling and trading and doing business with Microsoft the vendors that supply Microsoft with everything from office furniture to catering all of those, there's no question who has done more good for more people. A whole lot more good done for more people by Bill Gates than Mother Teresa. Money is not a terrible measure of a person's life. It's not all there is to your life. Obviously not. Obviously not. And there are people who live wonderful lives and are wonderful human beings who, who don't end up with any money or don't have any money throughout their lives that's certainly true but in general in general in general successful business professionals are better people than people who don't make money how do I know how can I make a statement like that well it's very simple you see because 
there are figures freely available of how many doctors have lost their license for um, behaving abominably towards patients, ranging, and, and the figures are horrifying, uh, ranging from uh, operating under the influence of drugs or alcohol, sexual harassment and molestation of patients under, under anesthetic. I mean, there's all kinds of things, right? This applies to, by the way, psychiatrists. The number of psychiatrists, doctors, and dentists who've lost their licenses is quite amazing. How about teachers? Everyone loves school teachers, right? How about the number of school teachers who've lost their licenses for everything ranging from utter incompetence, um, beating kids, sexual uh, molestation of kids, all very high. How about the number of business professionals in the United States of America that have been uh, successfully prosecuted for anything? Well, if you measure the number of doctors, dentists, and lawyers that have lost their licenses for, uh, for um, malfeasance, and you look at that as a proportion of the total number of doctors, dentists, lawyers, psychiatrists out there, if you look at the number of teachers who are in trouble for abominable behavior towards their students and responsibilities to their jobs as a function of the total number of teachers out there, all of these numbers easily available, and then you look at the number of business professionals who have uh, got into trouble and been successfully prosecuted, and you look at that as a fraction of the total number of business professionals in the country, you will find, and I'm I mean, honest to goodness, this is an absolute fact. You will find that, uh, on average, to the extent that all these numbers are accurate, and there's no reason why they shouldn't be, business professionals are hundred, about 100 times, approximately 100 times more virtuous than school teachers, and even more than that, more virtuous than doctors, lawyers, dentists, and psychiatrists. And it makes sense, because... All those other people are depending upon structures to maintain their esoteric control over their marketplace. What I mean to say is that um, when you go and uh, visit your doctor, do you have any idea of how high in his class or her class your doctor graduated? I bet you don't. By the way, do you even know what medical school your doctor graduated from? Come to think of that, do you honestly know that your doctor, your doctor actually did go to medical school? I think not. Oh, the diploma on the wall. You obviously haven't fooled around with a computer and Photoshop and a printer, have you? I can turn out a pretty good-looking diploma in no time at all. So um, what do you really know about your doctor? The truth is very little. But uh, when you do business with uh, somebody who is not depending on a society of doctors for his prestige or a society of psychiatrists talking about the American Psychiatric Association I've got to tell you something about them too um, but you're dealing with somebody who rises or falls on how well he treats you as a customer everything is different right? students do not have any say in how well their teachers are paid Teachers have tenure, they have longevity, they have job security, they have uh, tremendous perks. And what do their customers have to say about it? Nothing. Doctors, dentists, lawyers, accountants, how about, how about those folks? Well, 
those who practice good business strategies actually do very well because they treat you like a customer and you feel it. And so you love going there and you talk favorably to your friends. Your friends say, can you recommend a lawyer? Yes, I certainly can. But those who depend upon their professional prestige, that's a different story. But when you go to buy something from a merchant, it's very straightforward, it's very direct. And, um, and that transaction is intrinsically honest by its very nature. Another transaction that is very honest by its very nature is uh, when you visit the store on my website. So please do visit youneedarabbi.com. That's right, www.youneedarabbi.com. And um, take a look around. You can also subscribe to my free weekly email, Four Tools, which is a spiritual strategy with uh, useful information that you can employ in your financial, social, family, faith lives. And, um, and uh, if you don't like the website youneedarabbi.com, well, you can just go to rabbidaniellappin.com, bring you to exactly the same place and uh, works really well. You'll have no trouble at all. So um, visit the website, and uh, meanwhile, a quick pause, and when we come back, uh, a further examination of the role of money and why that role of money is uh, so um, hated and uh, loathed by liberals. We'll come back in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. I mean, that's what explains Donald Trump, what explains the fact that you've got a primary voting group of conservatives who list being conservative as the third most important thing to them shows you how much anger and frustration there is because they list above it being authentic you know say what you mean mean what you say and that shows you what their nature of their anger Jay Severin weekdays 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network with stories in the areas of family friendship faith and finance this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, I'm fortunate enough right now to be uh, aboard a small boat cruising the coast of British Columbia. So uh, if you hear any seagulls in the background or any fishing boats puttering past, uh, you'll know exactly what's going on. And um, in a few weeks, I will be back in the studio again, and uh, we'll be back to normal with a production that satisfies the rigid quality control enthusiasts at the blaze who are being very tolerant and and very kind uh, to allow me to nonetheless keep up the podcast even though uh, I am in remote circumstances which is very enjoyable for me but uh, it does mean that there is a certain um, shall we say diminution in what is otherwise the pristine, sterling, high-fidelity quality of this podcast. And so I very much hope that uh, you will go with the content, which I will endeavor to keep up to standard, even though the uh, production values might uh, suffer a slight uh, fall during this time that I uh, am on a family trip. And we're, we're talking about, at least what I'm discussing, 
is that uh, the, the soul of liberalism, with its emphasis on equality rather than freedom, loathes the idea of people who are successfully making money, using that money to get better medical treatment. Now, to tell you the truth, they really are not crazy about people using their money to get better houses. I mean, after all, right, people who've made a few dollars tend to live in better homes than people who are struggling. They're not crazy about that either. But don't forget that many who drive liberalism, many who fund its political campaigns, many who provide the philosophical fury that fires up the hearts of liberals worldwide, many of those people are themselves heirs. They're people who've made money in ways they don't fully understand. Have you ever wondered why it is that movie stars are much more liberal than, uh, than professional sports players? What's the reason for that? Why is Hollywood such a bastion of liberalism, but the NFL is not? You know, how come, how come every quarterback is not a notorious, loud-mouthed liberal? Why? Actors? Oh, actors have a lot to say, and almost inevitably on the liberal side of things. But um, why not sports enthusiasts? The reason? Very simple. The reason is that uh, every NFL player knows that he's earning his money. He's doing something, first of all, that not a lot of other people can do. And number two, he's doing something that a lot of people are willing to pay money to watch. And that marks him as somebody who's earning an honest living. And yes, he's being paid a fortune, but that's what the market requires. Not many people have the talent, not many people have the ability, and not many people have the willingness to play professional football. Those who can do it well and are willing to do it will be paid what the market will bear. The market will bear what people are willing to pay to watch. It's all very honest and very straightforward and very simple. Now, movie stars are completely different. Movie stars feel guilty because they make as much or more money than sports heroes, but um, they don't understand it. They don't quite get it. They say, if it wasn't for the fact that the sun caught my teeth at a certain angle and somebody spotted me and somebody cast me in a movie and that was the start of my... If that wouldn't have happened, I would be nowhere because I can't do anything else. I, I, I would be, I'd be serving tables as a waiter in Hollywood like all the other aspiring actors. They don't fully buy what their good fortune is. And so they constantly are saying to themselves... I don't deserve this. And the only way to make myself feel good, the only way I have to make myself feel worthy is by making sure that I care about others who have less. I'm a good person. And that's a very interesting thing because most conservatives do not measure their personal virtue in terms of their political loyalties. Most conservatives do not define how good they are in their own hearts as human beings by their political loyalties and by their political affiliations. And if you ask a conservative, are you a good person? 
first of all, you won't get an immediate answer. Most times there'll be a thoughtful moment or two, and they say, well, you know, I try to be. And they, well, what do you do to be a good person? And they'll talk about uh, being um, loyal and faithful husbands and, and wives, and they'll speak about charitable work. They'll talk about work they do for various organizations. But it'll always be in the private sector. That's, that's what defines their goodness. It might be church-related. And, I mean, I know that's, you know, to whatever extent I ever occasionally manage to think of myself as having any good points, um, it would be for those reasons. But how about liberals? When you speak about liberalism, liberalism is in itself virtuous. And very often the question elicits bafflement. What do you mean? Of course I'm a good person. I'm, I'm a Democrat. I'm a liberal. I, I support liberal causes. And that translates into essential virtue. And that's a very important point. It's a very, very big distinction. A very big distinction. And so a whole lot of, of liberalism has at its core the, the, the basic idea that I'm a compassionate person and uh, I don't know, I mean, how come I was born here, not in a slum in Calcutta, and uh, I don't deserve my good fortune? And the only way in the light of that to feel worthy is by being a liberal. And so... Many of the people who drive liberalism are very wealthy people, and they live in beautiful homes, and they are driven around by chauffeurs in beautiful cars, and they don't want to lose those. Most, most wealthy liberals who uh, pushed very hard for Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, to pass, they themselves are taken care of by private medicine. In fact, the very politicians who work on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., made absolutely sure that they themselves are not bound by the requirements of Obamacare. And so for all of these people, the idea of liberalism is it's for the others, it's not for me. It's to take care of the unfortunates. I'm okay. And so they're good with their comfortable homes, mansions, luxurious palaces, luxurious forms of transport. You know, you sometimes are struck by the incongruity of somebody speaking about, oh, you know, I'm such a good person, I care about the environment and the planet, but they fly around in uh, private aircraft. Now, I'm sure you have a pretty good idea of what a Gulf Stream spews out into the atmosphere, and this is a whole different topic, obviously, um, because, as you know, I don't worship at the shrine of environmentalism. Uh, but at least according to the dictates of those who do, wouldn't you have thought that there is something, something of, of an element here of hypocrisy. But no, it's always for other people. I'm okay. I, in, I endorse liberalism. So all you unfortunate folks can have equality with each other. I don't suggest you should have equality with me. That's not the, that's not the argument. And this is why in the Soviet Union you had the nomenclatura. You had those at the top of the heap. You had those who were close to the positions of power in the Kremlin. And obviously, obviously they enjoyed differently from, uh, from the uh, run-of-the-mill Soviet citizens, unfortunate devils that they were. Everything works a little bit differently. And so 
since equality is the uh, reigning moral value, well, obviously, people should certainly not be able to use money to get different levels of medical service. The poor, quote the poor, and those, that terminology is not terminology I even acknowledge in the use of for human beings, as I have and will explain, but the way liberalism would have it, the poor are entitled to exactly the same medical care as the rich. It makes no difference. And, in fact, they get some help from this, from the medical community itself, uh, which sees its own cloak of virtue made up of the threads of serving everybody in exactly the same way. And so if uh, you can be a hardworking, tax-paying, diligent citizen, and you can walk into the emergency room of, uh, of a New York City hospital, and you will wait your turn behind an illegal immigrant who uh, robbed somebody yesterday, murdered somebody last week, hasn't been caught yet, and has come in with a bullet wound, and you will wait because the medical community uh, believes, and, and this is their, um, their way of feeling virtuous, that they don't distinguish. Everybody is exactly the same. And again, right now I'm not discussing the, uh, the merits or drawbacks of, of, such a, of such an approach. I'm just trying to make the point that how much money a person has made is not a terrible measure of what that person has done for other human beings. It's not a bad measure at all. And we, and I keep having to stress this, because the message that the culture beams out at us nonstop through politics, through entertainment, the media, everywhere, the message always is the same, that if you've made a few dollars, it's a measure of how bad you are, not how good you are, and that's why you are told you must pay your fair share. Obviously, it's something you're not already doing, and... The truth is, and this is a very important point, if this is the, the only point you get from this uh, segment we're, we're in right now, it's worth it. And that is that if you've made a sum of money by serving other human being, honestly, transparently, by providing goods or services that enhance their lives and for which they are willing to pay, you do not need to vindicate yourself by giving charity. We have to give charity anyway. It's a completely separate moral obligation. But it's not because you've made money. One of the terrible, terrible mistakes in modern American politics is the number of people who pay no taxes, the number of people who therefore have no stake in society. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And again, it's part of the practice of socialism. But the truth is that it is impossible to make money without serving other people. And that's why it is that entrepreneurs who have suffered sleepless nights figuring out how to make payroll are, in my view, in my view, people more worthy than those who've never, ever earned a living. People who've spent their lives, who've gone from students to politics, right? People who um, have really never worked in the public sector. And this country has been afflicted 
by an, several presidents in the last few decades who have never earned a living, who have never, ever worked in the world of business. And uh, I've got to tell you that um, uh, I think it's a terrible mistake to raise children without ever having encouraged them and helped them get jobs so that they work for money. I think it's a terrible mistake um, to, uh, to trust people who've never, ever been active in the world of business. I, I, it is true. I'm, I'm turning popular culture on its head on this. And I'm sure that many of you are shaking your head saying this can't be. What is he telling us here? But um, I, I commend your attention. I, I appreciate the time you're willing to invest in trying to look at these things from an entirely different perspective. And I hope that um, I am bringing you something of real value because, uh, yes, I make money through doing this. I do. And you know that. I mean, there's no, that's, that's not a shameful secret. I'm proud of it. And that's only going to be true if you find value in this because if you turn off and stop listening, well, we know that. And uh, the end result is that uh, I won't make any money and I, I won't be able to do it for free, so that'll be the end. That's how this works. Quick break, and uh, in just a moment, we'll be back uh, getting ready to wrap up this episode of the podcast uh, with a closer look at the American Psychiatric Association and what unanimity really means. Don't go away. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. The FBI tried to send Scooter Libby away for years for lying to federal investigators about something that was completely irrelevant. Not that the media has explained that to you. Scooter Libby didn't disclose a darn thing. They got him for lying under oath about something that didn't matter. But he was attached to Cheney, so they wanted to make an example out of him. They went after him. Hillary gets to get out of jail free card, known as being an important member of the Democratic Party. Buck Sexton, weekdays noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Your Rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, thank you so much for being uh, persistent and uh, staying with me through this long podcast. And uh, one of the questions I've been asking myself is whether the, the, this particular format for the podcast is just too long. Uh, is it difficult for you to, uh, to listen to such a long podcast. Now, I, I know you're probably not listening to it at one go, but that's part of the beauty of podcasts, which is you listen to them at your convenience, not mine. And uh, so what I'm hoping is that uh, you have it and you listen for as long as you feel like, and, uh, and then you put it away and deal with other aspects of life and maybe have a chance to think a little bit about some of the things we're talking about, and then you come back to it and uh, proceed. That's what I'm hoping. But uh, if you feel that the format of, of, of the, the current format is too long, then please just uh, write me. Go to my website, and, uh, which is rabbidaniellappin.com, R-A-B-B-I. That's rabbidaniellappin.com, L-A-P-I-N. And uh, on the Contact Us tab, uh, just contact me. Just send me a note. Give me your thoughts. And, uh, and if, indeed, it turns out that... that some people 
or a large number of people perhaps feel that the format is too long, uh, we'll change it. But right now we're uh, right now it seems okay. It seems to be working, but I don't really know for sure. But I do count on you to let me know and tell me. Uh, we're um, I want to wrap up with a uh, something which is a very important uh, principle that I think is usable in business, in, in social life, and that is, my friends, unanimity is always suspect. Okay, what I mean by that is that in ancient Jewish wisdom, there is a principle, which is that if a court of law, and there were different courts of law in traditional Jewish jurisprudence, uh, you had a court of, of three judges, you had 23 judges, you had uh, 71 judges, you had different numbers of judges for different types of courts. And yes, and some issues really uh, involved a very large number of judges. Uh, this did happen. But um, the, the point is that in all of these court procedures, in every setting, uh, imagine that uh, somebody's guilt is being... Uh, judged, if all the judges vote one way, the result is disqualified. The, uh, the, 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 the person who's under trial walks away. If every judge was unanimous, if not a single judge found reason for dissent, this would be, the, the ruling would be rejected. Unanimity is suspect. When a whole group of people all agree on one thing you must know that it is not the result of universal thoughtful consideration other factors are at play factors might be fear social pressure political issues but it is not truth and it's not justice because unanimity does not come about in the real world when thoughtfulness is at stake and when human beings are doing the thinking. Well, let's go and take a look at the American Psychiatric Association. This is the professional body of the mental health profession, and uh, they publish something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, the fifth volume came out in uh, 2013. And uh, it's been fascinating for me to uh, read the various manuals, DSM, DSM-2, 3, 4, 5. What's going on? What makes it so interesting? Well, you see, when it comes to um, uh, my motor car, or for that matter, take the boat I'm on, and it develops a problem. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, in a fairly remote place called Finlayson Arm in British Columbia, uh, just last week I had three mechanics on the boat uh, trying to solve a particular problem. Do you think they took a vote? Do you really think that they each examined it and then they went and sat down in the boat saloon and they handed out pieces of paper and said, everyone should write down what they think is wrong with this boat? No. Not at all. There was no confusion. There was no debate. There was no voting. It was all absolutely clear. Do you think car mechanics have a vote about what constitutes proper performance on a car? 
I don't think so. And for that matter, in most aspects of physical medicine, for the most part, yes, people get a second opinion for sure. But a disease is not established by vote. Would you not agree? I mean, a person has the flu or they don't have the flu. You know, a person has uh, uh, appendicitis or he doesn't have appendicitis. We don't have a vote in the hospital to decide what he has. But the mental health profession is entirely different. And the reason is because the mind is part of the human soul. It is part of our spiritual makeup, not part of our biological or chemical makeup. And the mental health profession, uh, since the days that uh, Sigmund Freud won out against um, Carl Jung, uh, Carl Jung was much more open to the idea that spiritual factors played a part in diseases of the mind, diseases of the soul. Uh, the Freudian school was locked into the idea that... Uh, it's all biology, it's all scientific, it's all physical, and that uh, when you get right down to it, this leads to an approach in uh, mental health, which is that uh, there either is or will be a tablet for every malady. You simply don't have to worry, because if it isn't re readily available now, it soon will be a pill to fix every mental condition. Depression, pop a pink one. Whatever it is, it just, well, that is not what I believe to be true. Uh, I think that when it comes to the mind and the soul, you're talking about spiritual issues, and that attempts to solve mental problems entirely chemically or pharmacologically or biologically are doomed to failure. And uh, part of the in inherent flaws and fallacies within the field are that diseases are defined by popular vote. That's right. And so you can go back to earlier manuals. And today the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM of the mental health profession, is tremendously influential and very important. As a matter of fact, Obamacare defines what psychiatrists are paid based on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It defines the disease... The, the doctor, the, the psychiatrist, has to fit the patient into one of the classifications that already fits, that already exists in the DSM manual, and, uh, and then they are paid and they bill according to that. So th we're talking about a book that, uh, <laughs> and the funny thing is, is you know, th there isn't an equivalent for um, oncologists. You know, there's not an equivalent for surgery. There's not an equivalent for the orthopedic profession. Because those things are physical, they're immediately obvious and evident. But in the mental health profession, it's all esoteric, and it's all defined by the profession itself. And so uh, you don't have to go back centuries, only a couple of decades, to find the earlier version of the DSM, which regarded homosexuality as a mental disease. It was a mental condition that needed to be cured, or could be cured. And then you move on, and another edition of the DSM manual comes out, and um, they decided this was 1973. That edition of the DSM came out, and 58% of the uh, of the psychiatrists on the board of the A, uh, A uh, of of the APA uh, voted 
to take out homosexuality as a mental condition. This is crazy. This is the equivalent of a group of doctors having a vote to decide that cancer is not a disease. It's madness. But you see, in the wonderful world of psychiatry, anything can happen. And so they had a vote, and 58% of the psychiatrists on the, the board said, no, you know what, up till now homosexuality has been a disease, now it isn't. Finished, gone, great, no, no longer a disease. Terrific. Well, time went by from 1973, and finally we came to 2011. And now they're working on the edition of the DSM, and they're trying to decide uh, whether homosexual marriage is something that the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, stands behind and considers to be a healthy manifestation of everything. And um, they voted unanimous, 157 to 0, a unanimous vote that homosexual marriage is a good thing. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as an honest, unanimous vote. And so I wanted to leave you with this valuable piece of what I consider to be helpful information because you can apply it in so many different areas of your life. If everybody around you is saying something, it might be your spouse and your children, it might be co-workers, it might be a board meeting, it might be uh, at the PTA, it might be at the Boy Scouts, wherever it is. But if you're in any group of people and you're the only person and everybody else is unanimous on the topic, you have to know there's something going on. Just as we know that at the American Psychiatric um, Association's vote in 2011 on homosexual marriage, there were other factors at work. Uh, there's got to have been somebody who had reservations. They didn't express them out of fear. They didn't express them for political reasons. They didn't express them for career advancement region, reasons. Whatever it is, it was not honest. Anytime, anytime there's a unanimous vote and that's it, you got to know that it's not real. That's simply not the way things really work. And that if there was a unanimous vote, you can safely know that something mischief was afoot. No question about it. And uh, <laughs> this was just such a, uh, an amazingly clear example. Come on, really? Out of 157 psychiatrists who, as recently as 1973, thought that homosexuality was a disease, now say that they're in favor of homosexual marriage. Caution, my friends. Caveat emptor. Great caution is recommended. Great caution. Very much so. Well, that brings us uh, close to the end of uh, this podcast. It only remains for me to wish you a healthy and a prosperous week. Know that I appreciate you listening to these podcasts. I cherish your participation. I welcome hearing from you. I love hearing from you, so please let me do that. And uh, I also uh, would mention that um, I do a show on TCT television, a daily show. And if your cable supplier has TCT, then you'll be able to get a show called Ancient Jewish Wisdom with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. It's a show I do with my wife, and uh, it's become a very, very popular show. At any rate, my friends, a prosperous and healthy week ahead. 
God bless you. We'll be together again next week.